Thanks, Craig. Okay, did I turn this thing? Okay, it's on, all right. Thank you, Craig, and just on the whole thing of, you know, the dark-haired women and the light-haired women, you know, light-haired women, and we're keeping it that way. Amen. So, uh, um, we're, I'm super excited to be here. I just want to say um, just what a privilege it has been to be here this week and to get to know people. Um, it has been, uh, you know, people have said, are you exhausted? Are you worn out? And the truth is it has not been tiring. Um, we've been just so loved and cared about. People have been so gracious and kind. Now, I did tell Michelle that if we end up coming here, I'm probably going to be in better physical condition. Um, you know, in many ways, but on the bicycle thing, you know, I'm looking at people who have had body parts replaced and, uh, they were patiently waiting for me. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, just very gracious, loving and kind. And I'm just super thankful for that. It's been really encouraging to go to the different things that this church does and to see the way that God is using people, um, man just amazing. So I could go on and on about that, but I won't. Uh, I think since it's a candidating week, I should say something uh, related to candidating things. And so uh, I'm just going to start with that. And what I want to tell you is that as I think about my ministry commitments, um, it's going to be to love people, but to please the Lord. And so that's, that is my primary uh, commitment in ministry. Um, Jesus is the head of the church, and I think the way that, that we express the fact that Jesus is the head of the church is that we study God's word, we make God's word the primary thing, and we love each other. And when we love people, and when we make God's word the priority, that's how Jesus is the head of the church. And so I'm committed to doing that, and I think in addition to that, um, you know, God's called us to reach people. It's called us to reach the lost. And that's one of the things that I've been thankful for. And, and one of the, for Michelle and I, those are things that we, we wanted to, you know, we're, we're feeling like that's what's happening here. And those are the things that have just been affirmed to us in this week. And that, okay, we're on the same page. And it is just, so that's been super encouraging. So um, anyway, Michelle says, I got to stop saying uh, super encouraging because I guess I've been saying that a lot this week. Um, <laughs> The other thing, just a little bit about me, is um, if you end up affirming me, now Michelle and I, we've already made our decision, but we realize that it, we're not the only ones deciding. You guys are deciding. But we've made our decision, we're waiting to see how the Lord communicates his will to us, but if we end up coming, um, you are not getting a pastor who knows everything. Um, you are not going to get somebody who has it all together and knows everything that should happen, but you are going to get somebody who has a desire by God's grace um, to be humble and gracious and a person that God can work through. And so that's, that, that is my prayer if I come. And uh, I hope that God will use me in your life, and I hope that God will use you in my life. And um, so that's, that's all that I have to say about the candidating thing. And so you guys, we've been hanging out this week. We've been able to talk to each other. And so now I want to just keep the main thing the main thing. And whatever happens, God's word is a priority and we need it. And, I, and so I did pick this passage related to the fact that this is a, a candidating week. But, but this is primarily about just understanding 
how Jesus builds his church. And so that's the title of the message is Building Up the Body of Christ. And I'll give you the whole sermon really short. And that is that Jesus is the head of the church and Jesus builds up the church. But Jesus builds the church with his body, like his hands and his, his feet and his eyes and his ears. You know, his body is who builds the church, and that's you. And so that's, that's the whole message. So let's, um, uh, let's, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. And just a little bit of background, when God wrote the Bible... He used men to do it. And he used their backgrounds, their experiences, and their personalities as they wrote. But the Holy Spirit guided people to write so that each person who wrote, he evaluated circumstances properly. Um, and though he was writing from his experiences and his memories, the Holy Spirit made sure that all the gospel writers remembered everything perfectly, not just the gospel, but all the Bible writers. Everything in the Bible, it was written by a man, but it was also written by God. And that's why it's perfect. That's why we follow it. That's why we study it. And the Bible says that it is God-breathed. And so that's why we study, that's why the, we study the Bible. Now, for the book of Ephesians, about 29 years after Jesus died, four men left from Rome for Turkey. And each of them was carrying a book, which we have in the Bible. And those books are known as the prison epistles. And you probably already know this because you've been going through the Bible and you already hit Ephesians. So I'm just reminding you of some things you already know. And while, he was, while Paul was waiting in prison to appear before Nero, Epaphras was from Philippi, so he took Philippians. Onesimus was a runaway slave from Colossae, and he carried Colossians. Uh, or I'm sorry, he, he, he was carrying Philemon. And Epaphras was from Colossae, and he was carrying Colossians. And Titicus was from Ephesus, and he was carrying Ephesians. And so Paul's from prison. He writes, and he sends these people out. Now, Ephesians presents the church as the body of Christ. And, and I'm sure you know this as well, but Paul spent the most of his ministry time in, in Ephesus. Did you guys know that? He spent three years there. And my... I like all the passages on leadership. You know, I always say my favorite passage, and I guess in some ways they're all my favorite passages, but um, one of my favorite passages on leadership is um, what Paul said to the Ephesians, the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 7 through 30, 17 to 38. Now, some other pastors were at this church. You guys know who they were? Timothy was there. I'm sorry, yeah. Um, yeah, Timothy was there, and so was the Apostle John. Those are also people who spent time pastoring. Now, if you think about the book of Ephesians, you could break it in two parts. You guys know all this stuff, right? So you could break Ephesians into two parts. Chapter 1 through 3 is doctrine. Chapter 4 through 6 is duty. And that's kind of how the Bible works. The things that we believe show up in how we live. And so people have all different outlines for the book of Ephesians. It's doctrine and duty, position and practice, the high calling and the worthy walk. I mean, we could just go through. There's more. And I think it's interesting that you see that same pattern in other books of the Bible. Did you know Romans does that? 
1 through 11 is doctrine, and then 12 through 16 is practice. So there are, there are many books in the Bible that kind of theologically break up that way. So in chapter 1 of Ephesians, it talks about how we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chapter 2 talks about how we were dead and we were made alive. And that's a very popular passage. You know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. And then a lot of people forget the next verse, talking about the good works that God made beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then the second half of chapter 2 through chapter 3 answers the question, like, where'd the church come from? And what about Israel? And that happens in Romans 2, uh, Romans 9 through 11. It happens in Romans as well. Uh, chapter 9 through 11, where it talks about, well, what about the nation of Israel? How does that factor in with the church? And then in chapter 4, we're encouraged to live in a manner worthy of gospel, the gospel. So chapter 4 is unity. Chapter 5, spirit-filled relationships. Chapter 6, how we fight a spiritual battle. So that's the book of Ephesians. Let's just jump in. And, and I'm going to be teaching on Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. But we're going to read the whole of chapter 4. And I'll just make a few comments. I'll try to confine myself. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And just something short to say about that. What is the gospel worthy of? We're supposed to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So when you think about Jesus, what did he say? He said, anyone who wishes to come after me must deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Apostle Paul in chapter 3 of Philippians says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So what's the gospel worthy of? It is the most valuable thing, and we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, we're not trying to live to be good enough for the gospel. That's what Paul said. Jesus was good enough for us, but we want to live up to what God has done in us. We want to live up to the value of our salvation. So it goes on here, and in verse 2 and 3, it talks about unity. And so it just says, with all, this is how we do this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, this is one of the things I think is awesome, is why does he have to say, bear with one another, be humble? It's because unity doesn't come because we're all the same. We think the same. We do things the same. 
Unity comes because of this next passage here. There's a lot of ways that we're different. But verse 4 says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We all serve the same God. We all have the same head. And uh, with spiritual gifts, we'll be talking about that briefly. But God puts every single person in the body of Christ the way he wants them to perform the function that they need to function, perform. It goes on here, talks about spiritual gifts. And this is talking about the spiritual gifts that God gives each of us when we come to know the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and gives you a special gift that you can use to serve the body. And so that's what I believe is being pointed out here. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, host, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, and saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And so there's, there's a lot of doctrines related to that, which we won't discuss this morning. Um, but the point there is that Jesus gave gifts to men. And then there's the shift here in Ephesians 4 through 11, and we're going to talk about gifts that he gives the church, but these gifts that we're about to look at, these aren't personal spiritual gifts. These are people, the gifts of leaders that God gives to the church. So we'll look at those. So uh, basically what we're going to see in these four verses in, in 11 through 16, uh, we're going to see that God provides leaders with a specific purpose. He says, who is going to build the body of Christ? So there's leaders to help build the body. He says, who's going to build it? That's the people in the church. He says what we're supposed to be building. And then he gives some instructions on how we're supposed to build. That's all in these verses. So let's look at it. One of the things that you'll notice in this passage, too, is that Jesus is the priority in this passage. Um, you all know Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we have a mission and Jesus is going to build the church. And this is how he does it. Let's read this passage. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, jointed and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know, um, Jesus is the one who builds the church, but he uses us to do it. And in, um, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, 
um, it, it talks about apostles, and it says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring you, you up by sincere reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your, your apostles. The apostles and prophets are people who spoke God's word. God gave direct revelation through them. And we don't have all of that recorded in Scripture. Uh, there, there are prophecies that were made in the New Testament by people that were not written down, recorded, not a part of Scripture. But the apostles and the prophets are who gave us God's word. They're people that God spoke through. There are about 435 prophets in the Old Testament, and that would include um, Jesus and also the prophets in the book of Revelation. And there are about 10 to 12 prophets in the New Testament that are mentioned. And so God gave these people, and he spoke through them so that people would know what God said. That was a gift to the church. So he gave apostles, he gave prophets, and he gave evangelists. Evangelists, now every Christian evangelizes, but God gave evangelists to the church to build up the body of Christ, a gift. You know, it's like Billy Graham. Have you ever thought about how amazing um, the Lord has used him? You ever met somebody who had the gift of evangelism? So I feel like I know somebody who has the gift of evangelism. His name is Mark, and he was working in a car dealership and Michelle hates it when I tell this story because she used to sell cars uh, when she was young. And she was working in a car dealership. And her manager uh, drove his mom's car into the shop and was listening to the radio, heard a sermon, and ends up becoming a Christian. And for the next two years after he became a Christian, for the next two years, he shared the gospel with Michelle. She saw his life totally transformed. Uh, he, he went from, you know how the car business is, where they slam people, and she saw him go from, from the way he was before to having an old couple come into the dealership that was just going to pay whatever they were told to pay. And he says, man, we have people that come in here and they just grind us. And here you got this nice old couple coming in here and they're just willing to pay whatever. No way we're burying them. And he gave him a great deal, and she saw that transformed. He would share the gospel with her. He would give her sermon tapes and say, um, Michelle always wanted to go home early. And he would just say, if you'll take this tape and listen to it, you can go home early. But when you come back tomorrow, you've got to tell me what, you're, what you listened to. <laughs> he and his wife would pray for Michelle, share the gospel with her, and it just wasn't taking and so one day he, uh, he takes her out and he says, hey, can we, can, we, um, can we go to lunch? And Michelle's like, yeah, sure. So he gets in the car and they're driving off to lunch and he pulls over on the side of the road and she tells me, if I didn't know him real well, I would have got creeped out. <laughs> pulls over on the side of the road and he says, hey, Michelle, can, can we pray together? She's like, yeah, sure. He's like, uh, can you repeat after me? And she's like, yeah, sure. And so, so they're praying and he's praying and Michelle's praying along and and he, he starts leading her through the sinner's prayer. Uh, Lord, I accept you and as my Lord and Savior. And Michelle just opens her eyes, looks over at him. And she's like, no. <laughs> He's like, oh, well, I just don't know what it would take for you. And uh, Michelle told him, she said, I just can't put my life in the hands of a God that I'm not even sure exists. 
And I think that he went home and his, his family started praying for him, for her specifically. And it was shortly after that, that the Lord saved her and she ended up becoming a believer. But I want to tell you something about Mark. He, the thing that he did for a living is he did uh, warranties and dealerships. And so he would go to every dealership. And, and when I went over to his house and we're sitting and eating dinner and I'm just like, Mark, thanks. Because if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have anyone to be married to. <laughs> and um, and uh, when we went there, he, he would go through and he was explaining to me, yeah, this guy, he works at this dealership and I'm talking to him about this and I'm sharing the gospel with him about that. And he went through his entire schedule and where he went and the dealerships that he was doing business at. And he had relationships and could describe his conversations with every single person that worked there. Um, God used him so powerfully to reach people. Every Christian evangelizes. But Billy Graham, he preaches and man, thousands of people come forward. I know so many people who have come to know the Lord through that. God gave evangelists. And then he also gave pastors and teachers. And, and if you look at this, I like the way the ESV, if you're looking at that, I like the way the ESV explains this because in English is reflected some Greek structure. And one of the things that you'll notice here is he says, and he gave the apostles, and he gave the prophets, and he gave the evangelists. And then it says, and he gave the shepherds and teachers. Notice how there's no the before teachers. There's this unique um, expression where it's the shepherds and teachers, and it's putting those in a group together. That's one of the jobs of a shepherd is to teach, and all shepherds teach. Um, when you think about the qualifications for an elder, which, by the way, elders are shepherds. When they call the elders together, the instructions to the elders are shepherd. That's the word for pastor. This is the only place that, that the word for pastor is used as a noun. Everywhere else, it's used as a verb. It's just told you need a shepherd, but here, he gave shepherds, and some, some translations translate this as pastor. But all shepherds teach. They care for people. But part of that is to teach them what God's Word says. And so this, that's, that's a group. And those leaders are gifts. They're a gift to the church. All these, and God has given these gifts. Now, there's a lot of people who when they think about church, they feel like I'm going to hire a pastor to go do all the ministry. You know, there's a lot of stuff around here that gets, needs to be done. Let's hire somebody and have them do it. And then if all the work's not getting done, we got to hire somebody else to do it. And one of the things that we learn here is that God's given pastors a purpose. Uh, he's given them as a gift. He's also told them what they're supposed to do. And look at that here. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. To equip, that's to train, to prepare, to fit, to give somebody the tools that they need. So that's what leaders' jobs are, is to figure out what needs to be done, and then to help people learn and know and be prepared and to be able to do the work that needs to be done. And so it's the saints that do the work. Now, a saint. You know what a saint is? You know what a saint is. Okay, good. You're one, right? 
Yeah, this church is full of saints. Um, a saint is a holy one, a person who's been set apart from God, uh, set apart by God for God, but every Christian is a saint. And so the saints are to do the work of ministry. Uh, that work for ministry, that's the same word as deacon, it's service for building up the body of Christ. And so he gives the leaders to teach the people to do the work. And so that's who's supposed to do it, you. And you are Jesus' hands, you're his feet, and Jesus builds the church, but he always does it through you. And so the thing I love about this passage, too, so those are the first two points, is he gave the leaders, Jesus gives leaders, Jesus tells people that they're to do the work, the believers in the church, to be able to be ready. And then he tells us, this is awesome, he tells us what we're supposed to be doing, what we're supposed to be shooting for. So let's look at this. It goes on in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. So our destination is unity of the faith. That's, um, the faith is the gospel. It's that we believe the same things. There's unity when we have our faith in Christ, when we're trusting him for salvation. And so when we attain to the unity of, of believing this body of truth, and that goes beyond just the simple gospel message, it's what's in the Bible. And as we study it, we're careful to understand it. And that's one of the things that I love about a variety of perspectives and about people who don't all have the same convictions. And this is one of those dilemmas in the Bible because we read the same book and we study it, and the Bible tells us that we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit to lead us to truth. And we know that the Bible's understandable, and yet you have people that disagree. So I remember, um, I've never been on this side of a pastoral transition. This, this week is the first week I've ever candidated anywhere. Been in ministry for 30 years, never done this before. And, um, but I've been on the other end, and I know sometimes that can be, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You never know what to expect. It can be a little bit unnerving. And so I don't envy you. It's easier for me than it is for you. But I remember we, we had a lead pastor that they hired at the last church I was at. And one of the things I realized when they hired him is that we were on opposite ends of some pretty significant theological issues. And I was young in ministry, and if you would have said to me, are you guys compatible? I would have said no. No, if, if I wasn't already at the church, I wouldn't have stayed. Uh, I wouldn't have gone to a church because I just thought, we're just too different. We can't function together. Completely different views in some really important areas. And one of the things that I found out as we worked together was... Um, what I thought he thought was not exactly what he thought. What he thought I thought was not exactly what I thought. And as we really worked over our theological positions, we found out that we weren't as far apart as we thought we were. And then, as we worked in ministry together, um, he would say some things, and I would just say, yeah, I don't, just don't think that's biblical. And we'd go look at God's Word, and we'd read, and he'd go... Okay, I, I, I see that. I think you're right. And he moved a little bit. 
And then I would say something, and he'd say, you know, I don't think that's right. And we'd go to God's Word, and we would look at it, and I'd say, you know what, I think you're right. And I moved a little bit. And so in our time in ministering together, we got closer together. We never got to the place that we saw everything the same. But the body of Christ, and I think one of the reasons that God allows there to be difference of views in the midst of these things is because we pull on each other. And hopefully we help each other get where we're supposed to be. And, um, and, and you know, a lot of people, when they approach the Bible, you've seen this, they approach it with a shopping mall approach. And their approach is, uh, you know, I, li- I don't like this part, but I do like that part. And I would never believe that because that upsets me. And, um, and basically, they just approach the Bible and say, what is my preference? That's, that's what I'm going to pick and that's what I'm going to believe. And you know what? That's not how we're supposed to approach the Bible. Uh, one, in fact, that's the reason I went to seminary. Because I was studying a passage to teach the youth group. And as I studied it, one commentary says, this is the view you're supposed to take. And based on Greek, this is the one that's right. And then the other commentary I wrote, it said, this is the view you're supposed to take. And based on the Greek, we can know for sure that this is, this is the right view. And I just thought to myself, well, okay, this one seems right to me, but I don't really know Greek, so how do I really know? And I just sat there in my office thinking, I don't want to pick interpretations on passages based on what suits me. I want to know what God says. I want to know what does it really say. And I'll just tell you, there are lots of things I've, written, I've read in the Bible that I don't like. And when I read something in the Bible that I don't like, you know what I do? I change what I like. And sometimes that's a hard process, but I just say, God, if this is what you say, that doesn't suit me but you're the one who calls the shots, and if that's what you say, then that's what I'm going to believe, and if that bothers me, I'm changing me. And I think that that's how believers are supposed to work. And and so anyway, till we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. That's knowing Jesus, and the word that's used there is true knowledge. Uh, Francis went through 2 Peter last week on the video, and he talked about true knowledge. That was in his passage that he addressed. This is the same word. It's used 20 times, and it's like an intensified true knowledge. It's not just an intellectual knowledge. It is a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, he's our pattern. He's the one we're supposed to be like, so we need to know who he is. One of the things I've discovered is um, I've had a lot of conversations with some of my family members, and, you know, I'll say things like, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And they'll say, that's so unloving. Jesus uh, would never be unloving and say anything like that. And I always think to myself, well, you should read the Bible because he's the one who said that. (laughs) And one of the things I find is many people claim Jesus. Did you know that there are 93 verses in the Koran that mentioned Jesus. Um, in Islam, he, Jesus is a good prophet. A lot of people believe Jesus is a prophet. A lot of religions hold to Jesus, but you want to know what they all do? They all redefine Jesus by their definition. And there's plenty of people who just make up who Jesus is, and then that's who they try to be like. And, and the truth is, they're making an idol. They make a Jesus that's like them. We're supposed to see who God says Jesus is, and then we're supposed to grow to him. And so the goal is a unity of the faith, 
a knowledge of the Son of God that is precise, that is correct, not a Jesus according to our preferences, but the Jesus that's described in the Bible. Now think about the things Jesus said to the religious leaders. He says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear testimony of me. And these religious leaders were rejecting him. Luke 24, 27, Jesus, after he, after he ascends and he comes back and he's walking with his disciples, it says that Jesus starts with Moses and the prophets. So he, he just goes from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament, and he preaches himself from the Old Testament. When we do ordination councils, um, one of the things I do is I help people get licensed and ordained in our denomination. But that's actually one of the questions that we ask the ordination people. Um, show me Jesus, explain Jesus to me, but just use the Old Testament. Where's Jesus? Where do you see him in the Old Testament? How do you learn? See, Jesus did that, starting in Moses all the way through the prophets. And so we need to be people that are defining Jesus biblically. You know what the Bible says? It says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shift, shifting shadow. Some people think there was a different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. Somehow, now God works differently. It's kind of fun to figure out how that plays out, but God hasn't changed. And so we need to grow to, until we meet the measure and the stature of Christ. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Until we are just like Jesus. See, that's the problem. If we don't know Jesus, we don't know what we're supposed to be like. But when we do know Jesus, then we can strive to be like him. You ever thought about the Apostle John? Think about his, have you ever like listened to the description of him in the Gospels and what he was like? He, he's called a son of thunder. He and his brother were harsh, unsympathetic, ambitious people. One time Jesus is passing through the Samaritans and they don't accept him. And we know that sovereignly God is moving Jesus past them because he has somewhere to be. And John and his brother say, hey, Jesus, Wants to call down fire and burn those people up. And Jesus says, you don't even know what kind of a spirit you should be from. And so those are the people you see in the Gospels. But you see John older in his life. He uses, talks about love more than any other disciple. Um, in the Gospel of John, he never refers to himself by name. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is a gracious, gentle, loving man. He was transformed by Christ, and that should be what happens to us. Um, so that's what we're working toward. Look at verse 14, another result, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. 
There are two words that are used here. The toss to and fro has to do with your mind, just not knowing what, what you should believe, what you should think, just going back and forth in your mind. The carried about by waves, that word is emphasizing the results of not thinking correctly. So when you don't know what to think, then you don't know what to do. Those are both covered there. And we live in a world with all kinds of ridiculous philosophies. And people try things out, oh, this will be good, and it's destructive. I remember going to a youth conference with um, some really, they were youth ministry gurus. And I'm going to this youth conference, and they say, you know, 15 years ago, we thought this was the philosophy you should have with youth ministry. But after doing ministry for 15 years, we realized that doesn't work. And so we've realized we should do this. And they came up with a different philosophy. And after listening to what they had to say, I'm thinking, yeah, and in 15 years, you're going to realize that doesn't work either. And in the meantime, you've lost 30 years, and then another 15 years, 45 years. There are all kinds of ideas. We need to know what God says. Can I, can I just tell you, um, God doesn't make mistakes, and he's not figuring things out as he goes. And so we just need to latch onto that. We need to do what God says. And, and because I read the Bible and because I do what God says, I could read their first book and say, hey, this is a really good idea. This is helpful. This other stuff, no thank you, but that was a good idea. And I can read their second book and say, you know what, you got another, a different really good idea here. And this stuff, you're all wrong here, but this is something that's helpful, something that can help me learn. And you know what to pick and choose if you start with what God says. Um, I want to read you Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 97. And uh, you can turn there if you want, but it says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies because it's forever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I keep your word. I don't turn aside from your rules. You yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. You know, we're to respect our teachers. We're to respect and learn from older people who have experience in life. But there's somebody who knows more than all of them, and that's God. Okay, so then he gives us some specific steps, and I'll go quick because um, I'm probably going too long. So here's how we do it. Look at verse 15 and 16. Rather, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. We're to speak the truth in love. Um, Speaking the truth, that's speaking God's word, things that are true, uh, talking to people about what's true, and it's genuinely loving people. You know, uh, you read the description of love. Uh, love is patient, is kind, is not jealous. You just read that description of love. Um, that's who we're to be. That's what we're supposed to do. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Have you ever heard people say things like, I'd rather err on the side of truth. I come, from a, I come from a group where I hear people a lot of times saying, 
I want to err on the side of truth. You ever hear anybody say, I'd rather err on the side of love? You know what I always tell people? Um, when I read the Old Testament, I always see God saying, don't depart to the right or to the left. Like, do exactly what I told you to do. And so we shouldn't err on the side of truth, and we shouldn't err on the side of love. If we're trying to err, that's kind of a bad place to start. <laughs> Can we just say, God says I'm supposed to speak the truth in love, so I'm going to work hard to speak the truth, and I'm going to work hard to do it in a way that's loving. And not aim for error. Jesus says, go right down the middle, not to the right, not to the left. And so we speak the truth in love. This is an ongoing act, action. It's our main thing. I think about the Corinthian church. If, if you want to look at a church that had lots of conflict and difficulty and strife, it's the Corinthian church. But you read in chapter 5 about a person they prided themselves. We're gracious. We're not judgmental. We never... We don't get into other people's business. And Paul writes them a letter and says, what are you doing? And so they think they're loving and gracious, but they're the most insulting, backbiting church in the New Testament. And yet when you find people that say, no, no, I'm going to love people the way God tells me to love them, and I'm going to be committed to the truth the way God says I'm supposed to be committed to the truth. Those are the people who do the things in the beginning of this chapter in humility, they bear with one another and they're patient and they love each other. And there's unity in churches that say, God, I do what you say. And so that's what we're shooting for. That's how we do it. As we speak the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So Jesus is what we're shooting for. Not a Jesus of our own making, a Jesus of the Bible, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body so that it builds itself up in love. So what I want to encourage all of you with today and encourage me is God puts every single person in the body of Christ and they are who they are and, and God makes the church what he makes it through the people who are there. And it, I, it occurred to me one day that people are a gift and it includes the things they do well and the things they don't do well. I thought about that. Um, Michelle and I were newly married. Well, for the first year and a half of our marriage, we never had conflict. And um, I realized later that it was because it took us a year and a half to disagree about something that we both cared about. And then I realized we weren't that good at resolving conflict. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, we're never going to get this resolved because I can't live with option A and Michelle can't live with option B. And I was so frustrated and I could see no way out. And I just remember going out into the driveway and I was just so upset. And I'm just thinking, oh, at least I can still talk to God. And then I remembered 1 Peter 3, 7, if you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, your prayers are hindered. And I thought, oh, she's even wrecking my relationship with the Lord. And so I, I had to pray and just say, God, please forgive me. And, and I was hoping he'd hear that prayer and help me. And it actually occurred to me on that day, you know, I thought a lot about things and ways that Michelle had blessed me, things she was good at that I was not good at. 
and just how I'm so different because of her. But then I realized it's not just the things that are right about Michelle that are a gift to me. It's the things that are wrong about Michelle that are a gift to me because it allows me to use the fruit of the spirit. It allows me to be patient and to be humble and to be a help to her. And so my strengths and my weaknesses are a gift to her. Her strengths and weaknesses are a gift to me. And in the body of Christ, it's not just your spiritual gift. It's your strengths and your weaknesses. It's all a gift to the church. And I heard a, a, a friend of mine who's a missionary, missionary in Brazil told this story, and I found it on the Internet. Think about this and the way we relate to one another. You know, so often we'll say, Oh, the person who's really gracious and encouraging will say, oh, they're so gracious and they're so encouraging. And they'll say about the person who focuses on truth, that person's so hard. All they ever do is say the truth. They, they alienate people. And then the person who speaks the truth says, you know, they're, they're a mamby-pamby. They just, they're just loving toward people. And nobody ever knows what they're doing and never confront anything. Instead of thinking about the fact, no, God's made us unique and different and he's, he's put us here for a reason. And let me just read this great story. It's about a carpenter's toolbox. And the carpenter we know is Jesus. And the toolbox is us. And this is how the story goes. Brother Ham Hammer served as chairman. The other members of the tool belt informed him that he must leave. The chairman's got to leave, Rick. No, okay, wait that he must leave because he's too noisy. But Brother Hammer said, if I have to leave this carpenter's shop, then Brother Gimlet must go too. Uh, that's something you use to make little holes. He's insignificant. He makes a small impression. Little Brother Grim Gimlet arose and said, all right, but Brother Screwdriver, he's got to go. Because you have to turn him around and around and around to get anywhere with him. <laughs> and Brother Screwdriver turned to the other tools in the belt and he said, If you wish, I will go. But Brother Plain must leave too. All of his work is on the surface. There is no depth to what he does. <laughs> to this, Brother Plain leveled his terse reply. Well then, Brother Saul will have to depart too. He changes his proposed, he, he changes uh, his proposal always and he cuts too deep. And Brother Saw complained, saying, Well, Brother Ruler will have to withdraw if I leave, because he's always measuring other folks as though he were the only one who was right. Brother Ruler then surveyed the group and he said, well, Brother Sandpaper, he doesn't belong here either. He's rougher than he ought to be and he's always rubbing people the wrong way. <laughs> and in the midst of the discussion, the carpenter of Nazareth walked in and he had to perform his day's work and he put on his tool belt and he went to the workbench to make a pulpit and he employed the ruler and the saw and the plane and the hammer and the gimlet and the screwdriver and the sandpaper and all the other tools. And when the day's work was over, the pulpit was finished, the carpenter went home, all the accusations against these tools were absolutely true. Yet the carpenter used every one of them, no matter which tool he used, no other tool could have done that work better. Now that's the body of Christ. Um, thank you, this has been a pleasure. I love you guys, um, and 
we'll close here. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness. Lord, thank you that, that you care about us, that you make us, that you use us, and that the way you use us, it includes our strengths and weaknesses. And Lord, we all have them. And in this relationship, um, we certainly have not seen each other's, all of each other's strengths and weaknesses. And yet, Lord, we know that you are a good God, that you love us, that, that, that building the church is about you and your strength that you supply. It's not about us. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your kindness. Ask that you would bless in your name. Amen.